there was something almost Franciscan about his nosedive into squalor. It wasn't just a renunciation of middle-class respectability. It was the calculated, bodily embrace of everything that repelled the fastidious Eric. Muck, indescribably evil smells. When he sold his clothes and bought a tramps kit, he was making a point, at least to himself, that his life as a writer would start by plumbing the depths. It was like St. Catherine of Siena drinking a bowl of pus to show that nothing human was beneath her. For two years, Blair did the cook's tour of destitution, comprehensive, unrelenting, gruesomely anti-scenic. In the bathroom of one especially horrible DOS house, or Spike, he finally got down to basic truths. It was a disgusting sight. All the indecent secrets of our underwear were exposed. The grime, the rents and patches, the bits of string doing duty for buttons, the layers upon layers of fragmentary garments, some of them mere collections of holes held together by dirt. The room became a press of steaming nudity, the sweaty odours of the tramps competing with the sickly subfecal stench native to the spike. He didn't have to do it, of course. He wasn't that hard up. But there was never anything second-hand about Blair, any more than there was about Churchill. Both were doers, not lookers. Whether in the trenches or the DOS houses, they needed to live what they talked about. To clear his head of the static hum of post-war London, Orwell went as far away as he could without actually leaving Britain to the very edge of the kingdom, the Hebridean island of Jura. No electricity, no telephone, post twice a week, maybe. And it was here, in the remotest cottage he could find, typing in bed with a machine on his knees, knowing he hadn't much longer to live, that Orwell concentrated on what mattered most to him and to Britain, the fate of freedom in the age of superpowers. As Churchill issued his grim warnings, Orwell created a Commonal Garden Playman's Winston, Winston Smith. The year was 1948. In our world, there will be no love but the love of Big Brother, no laughter but the laugh of triumph over a defeated enemy, no art, no science, no literature, no enjoyment, but always and only Winston, there will be the thrill of if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Thanks very much. Simon, you wanted to say something about it? Um, or, or, or make, your, make no, uh, into that the remarks that you wish to make? As you're probably aware, I think the two basic reasons for, for this event taking place, although I'm not privy exactly to the pen thinking, uh, was that uh, Orwell was born June 25th, 1903, uh, so next year is the centenary year, and uh, there, uh, I think there's going to be more Orwell activity 
than there's been since there was a great deal of activity in, in 1984. There's going to be a conference at Wellesley. I think there's a film, there's a five-hour film that was done in 1984 about Orwell. I, I, I know there was talk of a three-hour film being done in, in Britain uh, next year. I don't know if that's going forward. But of course, the other great Orwell event, uh, the proximate Orwell event that, that is sparking this occasion is uh, Christopher Hitchens' book uh, that has been mentioned, Why Orwell Matters. So I will turn first to him. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, very much for coming. And thank you, Simon, for lending us those uh, clips. What some of you may not know is this is excerpted from a, a, a contrast that Simon uh, made in his um, history of Britain, his film history of Britain, between Churchill and Orwell. That's why we see the pantaloon yeah. figure. The two, win the two win if you can't hear me, hello? All right, shall I, I'll begin again. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. <laughs> uh, very decent of you. Um, what you may not know is that the clips we just saw were excerpted from a, a, a contrast offered by Simon in his filmed and indeed his written a History of Britain, which is available, the written bit upstairs, between uh, the two emblematic Englishmen of um, chosen by him, of Winston Churchill and George Orwell, and that's why you see the two chubby boys in their sailor suits and the other allusions. Uh, uh, and I thought I might begin by, by asking myself or to answer a question that was recently put to me. Why does Orwell almost never mention Winston Churchill? And in his diaries and his letters and his contemporary stuff, as a, Churchill is the, is the commanding figure for many of these years. And uh, my answer to it, because I can, I can find only two references, really. One is in a debate Orwell has with Alex Comfort, later a famous sexologist, and then at that time a famous anarchist, pacifist, anti-war figure in, in uh, wartime Britain, who accuses Orwell of basically signing up with the Tories and becoming a patriot and a pro-war figure. And Orwell replies in, in a poetic form um, under the pen name Obadiah Hornbrook, saying, well, I wouldn't mind joining with you in sh shooting Churchill when the war is over, but until it is, I'm willing to account him as my friend. And then, of course, at the end of the war, Orwell was very involved in the uh, election of the post-war 1945 Labour government, which swept away the long period of uh, conservative rule that had preceded it and the war. And um, in, in this respect also, I think, um, you know, demonstrated himself as very anti-Churchillian, but it's still a mystery why there's so little said. M my opinion is this, Orwell had hoped that the struggle against fascism, the struggle particularly against Nazi imperialism, would be led by the left and organized by the working class, but it wasn't. The left had failed this test for various reasons, uh, many of them its own fault. And the labor movement wasn't strong enough or decisive enough to mount the crucial resistance. So it had to fall on what he thought of as the old gang, the old Tories. But never known this to fail, have you, at any meeting? In <laughs> How long is it going to go on? Whose job was it to test this before? It started? Yours. <laughs> what, what's yours like? Do what? One of the better microphones. <laughs> Could I have a better microphone? <laughs> Will they all be like this? To try that. Hello? Is that is that superior? No. 
It's no joy for me to hear myself played back either, I promise you. Um, well, okay, where was I? So, he wasn't, in other words, his, his opposition to totalitarianism and, and to the temptation that it, that it presented, the seduction that it had carried out on so many intellectuals, was strong enough to mean that he didn't mind if he had to, making common cause with what he would have thought of as the traditional imperialist, class enemy, bombastic conservative, Winston Churchill, I, I, I'm going to offer this at any rate as a point of honor, as a point in his favor, uh, not, as a, not as something that was unscrupulous in the choice of allies, but rather as one that was um, rather choosy in point of fact, but once made uh, very intransigent, um, not in other words open to the charge of uh, casuistry. There were many intellectuals of the time, both in England and in the United States and in continental Europe, who would say, and did say, we can look up what they said. Well. German imperialism in Poland may not be very nice, but neither is British imperialism in India. Uh, why should we have to take one side against the other? There was a good deal of casuistry of that kind. Orwell's reticence, shall we say, on the Churchill question, in a funny way, confirms that he was immune from that kind of uh, feeble-mindedness or mental or moral corruption, but that he didn't particularly want to celebrate the fact. Um, I suppose if I don't say something about this morning's New York Times, I'll be accused of evading the question. So I will say something about this New York Times before I go on. I don't know who this guy John Reed is, and I don't know who his parents were or why they christened him with that name. <laughs> um, and he may be a bastard, um, for all I know. Uh, but I can tell you this, and it's in, it's in my book. Uh, he may not know it, because he obviously hasn't read Animal Farm all the way through, but at the end of the book, Mr. Jones does come back and take over the farm. Capitalism is restored. Mr. Jones is invited back. The farm is changed back by name from Animal Farm to Manor Farm. All that's been thought of before, Mr. Reed. Um, and that's the point at which the wretched, uh, luckless other animals can't tell one pig from another. Um, and indeed, as I point out, point out in my book, that's what Trotsky and the left opposition always said would happen that the Stalinist bureaucracy would sell off what they had nationalized and make a profit out of it, um, as indeed uh, they have, um, though not at the instigation of Snowball, um, it must be said, if anyone is still interested in the allegory or following it. And I also point out what I believe can be made um, original to me, but Peter Stansky would know if I was wrong. I haven't seen it pointed out before, at any rate, that in this celebrated allegory, there is no Lenin. There's no Lenin pig. There's an obvious Stalin pig. Bonapartism was the common name for Stalinism on the left. Napoleon is clearly Stalin. A snowball is clearly Trotsky. But there's no Lenin. Nor is there a Lenin in 1984. There's only a big brother, Stalin, and Goldstein, Trotsky. What this suggests about Orwell's unwillingness to make up his mind about the continuity between Bolshevism and Stalinism, I think is very suggestive. But it's obviously beyond the wit of Mr. Reed or um, his, the man who's written the introduction to his efforts, Alexander Coburn correctly cited in the New York Times as someone in direct descent um, from a Stalinist uh, dynasty. His father was particularly involved, in fact, in the purging and mopping up and execution of the left opposition in Barcelona and elsewhere in Spain. Um, and they have another thing in common. It seems Mr. Reed had, Mr. Reed's main agenda was to celebrate, or at least make it into a cause of self-criticism and introspection, the attack by Islamic fascism on civil society in this great city and elsewhere a short while ago and to wonder what we had done to deserve, how we might be blamed for this. 
atrocity. And Alex Coburn in his web magazine has recently published the uh, filthy diatribe of Amiri Baraka. I refuse to dignify this diatribe with the name of a poem which blames the fall of the Twin Towers on a Jewish conspiracy and points out that somehow all the Jews in New York managed to be elsewhere that day. This is, in other words, what we're up against in point of intellectual standards. And they very much remind one, and moral standards too, and they very much remind me of the sort of people uh, against whom Orwell had to contend with heavier odds, actually, in his own life. That digression then, out of the way, uh, open to challenge, of course, uh, expecting, ho ho hoping for one. Um, I'll just say quickly that I think the relevance of Orwell is, is this. There's a formal sense in which he's relevant as long as we con continue to study um, the lessons of fascism and national socialism, uh, the lessons of Stalinism and the lessons of imperialism, which were the three great subjects of the last century. Orwell was the only public intellectual who got them, as it were, right. I mean, he was prescient about all three and inventive in his opposition and early in his opposition to all three of these. And we can hardly say we've reached a point where we are beyond uh, the study of these questions, it seems to me. So the relevance in that sense is easy to state. <coughs> Indeed, given the continuing triumph <coughs> of the totalitarian principle, um, both internally and externally, internally as a terror and externally as a threat in both Iraq and North Korea, I think it could be said, I hope I wouldn't be thought opportunist if I said, that there was a very direct and immediate relevance to the study of Orwell and also to the study of those who uh, find something vicariously, at least not unattractive, in such regimes. I'll say no more about that, unless challenged, neither. Um, but that would simply be to say that he had, he had okay opinions, or he, he, he did and said the right thing. Um, I think more should be said on his side of the ledger than that. I think the crucial point was the language in which he chose to do it. He had a deep intuitive belief in the relationship between the uh, language, the linguistic ability of human beings, and their instinct for liberty, their instinct to be free. Um, one way I've tried to put this, I'll try it on you too, is um, that though he was an atheist, uh, beyond doubt, he was a Protestant atheist. His favorite, um, you perhaps don't know the joke about the roadblock in Belfast, the person is stopped, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? I'm an atheist. Are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? Happened to a Jewish friend of mine, in fact, in, in Londonderry. Um, Orwell's favorite line was a line from Milton, from John Milton, which was, by the known rules of ancient liberty. He believed that there was a tradition, uh, in the English language in particular, which was the one he knew best, though he, could be, he spoke French well enough to write in it and published many of his earliest works in the French language, um, that this was uh, partly a romantic memory of a past of, of freedom and equality, and partly the ambition to attain it and to assert it against arbitrary rights claimed by kings, or bishops, nobles, and, and others. Um, he quite clearly identified with the struggle to translate the Bible out of Latin and into English. In other words, the idea of a secret book written in a private language and possessed by an elite party, uh, the church. Uh, the struggle of, of dissidents uh, like um, well, it goes back to Wycliffe. It's a long struggle um, to, uh, to have the Bible rendered into the, into the vulgar language, the Vulgate, have it understanded of the people, as the 39 Articles of the Church of England put it, was, has an obvious analogy to the secret book and the party 
uh, language in 1984, but also to the to the long battle for for human liberation and to the and to the relationship between that and the terminology in which it's expressed. And I think it's probably that that gives his prose its muscularity and its sinew, and it's noticeable throughout that he has a great feeling, atheist though he is, for the King James Bible and for the Cranmer prayer book, not just as works of achievement in, in translation, in, in making uh, the essential literature available to the people, but also as, as works of literature in their own, in their own right. Um, I think myself the test of any public intellectual or, or any, any person aspiring to that definition, any critic, is really their ability to handle contradiction and to recognize it in themselves as well as in other people. Uh, the other thing I think that gives Orwell's work its, its enduring um, tone is that he knew that he was a man at war with himself. He was brought up, we saw some of the pictures of his upbringing and formation already, um, to distrust the poor and to dislike and fear them, to resent and to fear and think of as objects of domination the peoples of the empire, the colored masses as they used to be called, um, to be suspicious of, of Jews, um, to be very wary of uh, sexual deviance of any kind, and to think of women as um, either uh, sexless or too sexual, a forbidding combination of the latter, as were the, as are the preceding ones. His whole work is really a, a, an argument with himself, in the course of which he persuades himself out of these inherited disabilities, without ever failing to acknowledge the influence that they still retain on him. That seems to me to be a very elegant and courageous use of, of contradiction, a very honest uh, employment of it. And so though we may not be able to say, as one is often asked to, to say, well, what would Orwell have thought about this or that development? He, after all, he only made it into the first few weeks of, the, uh, of 1950, of the second half of the 20th century. He's closer to Dickens than we are to him in some ways. Uh, it isn't possible very often to say with accuracy what he would think. I think I can fairly surely say that he would have been against theocratic totalitarianism and its, uh, and its aggression against civil society. I think that would be a fairly uh, 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 emollient, easy uh, conclusion to reach. What I would rather say, though, what I prefer to say, and this, by the way, is in closing, is that whatever it was he would have concluded, because he could still be 99, and um, so many occasions when one wishes that he had made it that far, whatever, it, whatever position it was that he did take, it would still have been a pleasure to disagree with him. Thank you. Simon, Simon Drummond just wants to make a brief comment about Churchill, and then we'll turn to the other panel. Um, yeah, uh, can you, uh, this doesn't seem to be on, so, can, oh, can you hear me? Oh, that's better, right, okay. <laughs> no, there, there were, I know of at least two other moments where he talks about Churchill, I mean, uh, with the same mixture of feelings and self-struggle that you rightly identify as part of his, um, a, a signal of his power and honesty and his integrity. One is when the war, when Churchill takes office, and with all his reservations, and his contempt, really, for Churchill's demagoguery. He said at last, and here, indeed, he is spitting in the eye of the pacifist left with ever greater velocity and astringency. And he does say, at, la at least now we have someone in power who believes that wars are, fun are won by fighting. So attack simultaneously on Chamberlain and on the left. The other thing, Christopher, which I, I was amazed to discover is that actually he reviews 
Churchill's memoir, um, The Finest Hours, that volume, is the last thing he ever published. It's the last thing he ever wrote for publication. And although he, he says, although at times it reads like um, <laughs> um, one of Winston Churchill's campaign speeches, that, that he awards Churchill this extraordinary compliment. He says, these memoirs read like the language of a human being rather than a politician, which is as, uh, as, as hot a compliment as you could get from George Orwell at that, um, towards the end of his life. Uh, Jim Miller. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Orwell in America. As one of the Americans on this panel, I thought it would be uh, good to bring in an American perspective. Uh, Christopher, in his book, <coughs> talks about the American subject as Orwell's missed opportunity. Uh, and in some sense, that I think is true, particularly if you're looking, as Christopher does, at what uh, Orwell actually wrote about American novelists and American literature. But as someone who grew up on George Orwell in the 1950s and 1960s in America, I think there's a way in which uh, the whole British context of Orwell weirdly falls away, or it fell away for many of us reading him in America, because there's a certain quality to Orwell's voice that uh, uncannily resonates with Native American traditions of civil disobedience and plain talk and self-reliance. And it is this quality of the voice, which many years later, reading biographies of Orwell, I realized was a hard-won uh, facet of his style, a literary artifact, that um, almost by sleight of hand uh, was so bewitching to many people of my own generation, particularly uh, people on the left. All of us uh, grew up, uh, and I think we're more or less force-fed, 1984 and Animal Farm. Uh, <laughs> there was a cartoon version of Animal Farm, I remember, liking quite much as a child. But Orwell, to me, became a personal hero only when I read Homage to Catalonia. And it was this book that made him, for me, a hero because it was the record of someone who had gone into a conflict and had stood by his convictions and his comrades at considerable cost and had tried with all his might to tell the truth, uh, uh, politically risky though that truth telling proved to be, certainly uh, as I later learned in England in the 30s when the book was first published. And, uh, but, the, but the struggle that Orwell faced as he wrote the book was plain in the pages of the book itself. This kind of a voice, um, speaks, as I say, I think, to a certain native tradition of American letters, though not without a struggle, not least in our universities where bad writing can become a badge of pride, as I lamented two years ago in the pages of the defunct journal Lingua Franca, citing Orwell against Theodore Adorno as a kind of model of uh, plain speaking as opposed to deliberate mystification. Uh, the two uh, Americans who I think have most elegantly perhaps summed up this facet of Orwell, and I just want to draw to our attention, one of them is C. Wright Mills. C. Wright Mills, the radical sociologist in the 1950s, was uh, uh, preoccupied throughout his career with Orwell, going back to his association with Dwight MacDonald and the journal uh, Politics. Uh, Dwight MacDonald published some of Orwell's essays in the United States. For C. Wright Mills, Orwell epitomized uh, what an American would call uh, a no-bullshit approach 
to talking about the world when so many social scientists in his milieu were uh, resorting to cant and jargon and making it almost impossible to cut through a fog of rhetoric um, wrapped up under scholarship uh, and to make their point. Um, and so at the end of his uh, polemic against uh, obscurantist social science, in a footnote, Mills refers to Orwell as an exemplar of the democratic political role for intellectuals that he's describing. This role, and now I'm reading from C. Wright Mills, requires that individuals and be publics be given confidence in their own capacities to reason and by individual criticism, study and practice to enlarge its scope and improve its quality. It requires that they be encouraged in George Orwell's phrase, and now he's gonna misquote Orwell in an interesting way, to get outside the whale, or in the wonderful American phrase, to become their own man. He misquotes Orwell, but I think he gets the spirit right. To tell them that they can really know social reality only by depending upon a necessarily bureaucratic kind of research is to place a taboo in the name of science upon their efforts to become independent men and substantive thinkers. Uh, Lionel Trilling, in his introduction to the reprint of Homage to Catalonia, Homage to Catalonia which was uh, reprinted in 1953 in the United States, it had been basically neglected when it was first published, and then went through multiple editions, becoming much more widely read uh, as the 60s went on in a paperback edition, uh, put it this way, and it, it's a very beautiful passage that Christopher quotes in his book, but there's part of the passage he doesn't quote. And I, Trilling is a much better writer than I am, so I'm just going to read Trilling's words, because this, to me, sums up uh, the demotic resonance of Orwell for an American. Orwell is not a genius. What a relief. What an encouragement. For he communicates to us the sense that what he has done, any one of us could do or could do, if we but made up our mind to do it, if we but surrendered a little of the cant that comforts us, if for a few weeks we paid no attention to the little group with which we habitually exchange opinions, if we took our chance of being wrong or inadequate, if we looked at things simply and directly, having only in mind our intention of finding out what they really are, not the prestige of our great intellectual act of looking at them, he liberates us. He tells us that we can understand our political and social life merely by looking around us. He frees us from the need for the inside dope. He implies that our job is not to be intellectual, certainly not to be intellectual in this fashion or that, but merely to be intelligent according to our lights. He restores the old sense of the democracy of the mind, releasing us from the belief that the mind can work only in a technical, professional way and that it must work competitively. He has the effect of making us believe that we may become full members of the Society of Thinking Men. That is why he is a figure for us, and it was certainly why he remains a figure for me. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I think I read George Orwell as an editor <coughs> in this sense. I like to read him. And for a number of years, I've been trying to figure out why. I read George Orwell when I was a college student. And then I went to England, where I edited a literary magazine. And I rediscovered Orwell in a new way. One way is because I discovered his Englishness. Jim Miller mentions how his Englishness tends to fall away when you read him in America. 
But actually, that's true of a lot of English writers. I can recall reading all of Virginia Woolf and then being lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Cambridge and then meeting all the descendants of Bloomsbury and loathing them so much, I've never been able to read Virginia Woolf again. <laughs> when I read Orwell now, I notice his preoccupation with gardening. Well, of course, he's English. Or I discover, which is a revelation, that he grew up in Henley-on-Thames. If you've ever been to Henley-on-Thames, you understand why he would go looking for Wigan Pier. <laughs> or um, this astonishing thing, uh, which I just feel I have to read, completely English, which is George Orwell, he's gone to the best public school in England, he's thoroughly educated, he's fluent in French, he returns from France, and he finds a novel, and he offers himself up as a translator to none other than T.S. Eliot, and begins a correspondence with the editorial director of Faber and Faber. And he says, uh, dear Mr. Eliot, thank you for your letter, I'm sending you uh, La Belle de Nuit, which was a pornographic novel, he was thinking that maybe Faber and Faber wanted to translate. Um, as I said, I think it ought to have more chance in England than most French novels. Uh, if Mr. Faber and Faber ever want any other French books translated, I should be very much obliged if they would give me a trial. I am anxious to get hold of some work of this kind, and I think, and this is the crucial phrase, and you've got to pause here before after this phrase, you have to think of what the comparable American, precocious, talented, fluent in French, finally he's got through to T.S. Eliot, aggressive, <laughs> thrusting, ambitious lad would say. He says, I think I could do it as well as the average translator. <laughs> right. Oversell yourself. And we all think this is actually, we all think this is actually George Orwell, but actually it's just English. Um, the, one of the um, most enjo enjoyable autobiographies I've read in some times was Oberyn Waugh's biography, which was uh, autobiography, which is, uh, if I'm recalling the title correctly, is Will This Do? Will This Do. <coughs> I also discovered Orwell in English writers. And in this extent, I have to be honest and admit that I read all these English, because I was editing a literary magazine, and I was reading all this fabulous nonfiction. And it wasn't American, and it was fresh, and it was different, and I couldn't understand why. And then, sometime later, I read Orwell again and went, ah, that's how it works. I would see it in sort of, I mean, in some of, some of the lesser writers, like uh, Patrick Marnham, a very good uh, journalist and travel writer. Uh, or Colin Thubron, I think I found it, I'm just going to do a little, these are not Orwell quotes, but I think I found it even in um, Ian Hamilton's account of a football player named Paul Gascoigne. My first sighting of Paul Gascoigne was in 1987 when he was playing for Newcastle. I didn't exactly fall for him that day, but I certainly looked twice. There was, as they say, something about him. His, his giftedness was self-evident. He was a natural. You could tell that from his touch. His appearance was unprepossessing. He was plump, twitchy, and pink-faced, and on the small side, and he was cheeky. Now, you don't necessarily see Orwell in that yet, I know, but bear with me, bear with me, I'm getting there. And then there was this wonderful account of James Fenton's um, recollection of the fall of Saigon. And he was describing why he went to Saigon when every other journalist was leaving it. And then after his, uh, his beginning, which is actually more Orwell than Orwell, in which he recalls waking up a, with a dream in which he died and then put his body in the freezer because if you've got a dead body, you've got to do something with it. And then all his friends were perplexed. What did they do with his body? He then gives an account of the sort of leftist position on Vietnam. And he says, I do not wish to give the impression that I was completely wide-eyed about the Vietnamese communists when I set out. I considered myself a revolutionary socialist of the kind who believes in no fatherland of the revolution and has no cult hero. 
My political beliefs were fairly broadly based and instinctively grasped, but they were not, I hope, religiously held. But I wanted very much to see a communist victory. Although I had a few journalist commissions, I was not going as a journalist. I wanted to see a war and the fall of a city because, because I wanted to see what these things were like. Um, then I read Orwell, and I thought, that's where it's all coming from. And I've been trying to figure out now what it exactly it was that I was recognizing. And I, I want to identify just a few features, sort of editorial features of what is it that Orwell does that makes his writing so good. And all this, a lot of them are obvious, all the, the facts and the details and the understatement. Some of it, if you read earlier Orwell, you can read some bad Orwell. And seeing bad Orwell, you see what good Orwell is like. For instance, in early Orwell, there are lots of similes. A chestnut tree is covered with blossoms like great wax candles. Or in a hanging, which is perhaps the first great Orwell piece, there are five similes in the opening page. A sickly yellow light like yellow tinfoil. A row of sheds like a small animal cages. They were treating men like they were handling fish. It was actually ungrammatical, but he didn't have the benefit of a New Yorker editor. Um, <laughs> until later, and very interesting actually to discover in the Orwell correspondence that he, got a, he finally got a New Yorker contract, finally he was getting some big money, and his concern of course was what was it going to be like to be edited. <coughs> and I uncovered a couple Orwell pieces, one of which was not included in the collected Orwell, which I pointed out to Hitch. Uh, he actually did two reviews, uh, one of uh, Graham Greene and another one of Lady Gregory. And in, in this respect, I disagree with Hitch because I think Orwell's book reviews generally are pretty bad, and I thought this one was pretty banal as well. But I digress. But my digression is actually the crucial, one of the crucial bits of Orwell's features because in the same thing, The Hanging, one of the things that makes that work, many things make that work, mainly because he's there and he saw it, but it says, is the moment when the inmate, when the man who's going to be hanged steps aside and avoids a puddle. And it's a wonderful digression. And in it, Orwell observes, what, what, what does it matter if he walks into a puddle? He's going to be dead. But nevertheless, he sees a puddle, and all this custom and habit instruct him to step aside and avoid the puddle. And in that is the Orwell digression. And the Orwell digressions are actually the best features of Orwell. You get them in Down and Out in Paris. You get it into Wigan Pier at great lengths. You get them all of them. And it's Orwell slowing down like the novelist that he is and taking a little detail and having the thought and having the confidence to know that he can indulge that thought. And his thought is our entertainment. But I digress. <laughs> Another is the use of the conversational phrase. And I don't think you should underestimate that for a moment because actually even today they are still edited out of the New Yorker. These are actually quite strong features. They're things like, um, you, you sh for instance, you should look at the way he begins his paragraphs. Uh, the striking thing is, the curious thing is, the thing is. Or you should look at the way he uses the second person, not unlike the way I'm using it now. When, um, uh, when another generation might observe how one goes into the mines, uh, Orwell says you should, um, Actually, what he says is, when you go down a wall mine, it's important to try and get to the coal, take when everyone else is working, blah, 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 blah. But he's using the second person. But the heart of Orwell and the magic of Orwell is his use of the first person. No one uses the first person more efficiently or evocatively or as magically as Orwell. If, if there was an instruction to a young writer, it could, it, it would, there'd be no better instruction than this. Just read Orwell and watch how he uses the first person. Um, I'm just going to mention, read, read one more thing, and then I'm going to stop because I'm going on too long. But the, um, 
the Orwell first person is magical, um, mainly because, unlike most American writing, he's using the first person not to talk about himself. It's not the first person about me, it's the first person as witness. Almost everything Orwell writes in his great journalism is because he was there. And his first person is that narrative trick, that storyteller's trick that says, I was there, you weren't, this is what I saw. In Lower, Bur in Lower Burma, I was hated by a large number of people. The only time in my life that I have been important enough for this to happen to me. What a great first sentence. <laughs> That's about shooting an elephant. And of course, the first person there is a literary device as if it were a great short story. It says, again, he was there. And I, and I'm sure everyone else here, are very grateful that he was. Very good. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, I'll try and do without a microphone, but let me know if I do saying it. Uh, then we get to say anything. Yes, well. <laughs> <laughs> I just did my little Churchill sentence in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say. Woe betide the man who stops me from saying it. <laughs> you want to go back? I would rather, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, as we say in Yiddish, plotting here, actually, for the last. Um, First person. Um, uh, often he lies in the first person, of course, actually. Such, such were the joys. Not long after I arrived at St. Cyprian's, I began wetting my bed. Wasn't him, we know from Peter Davison. Um, but he does use it quite brilliantly. Um, I disagree with so much of what you've said, Bill, actually. Um, I'm so uh, happy. Yeah. <laughs> so you must be right. Um, but I think uh, it, it is, but I was very happy that you dealt with Orwell's style, actually. The only chapter missing from, from Hitch's fantastic book. And what I actually want to talk about, um, I would actually add, by the way, that another thing which I think is absolutely amazing about Orwell, and which we sort of take for granted, is actually a devastatingly brilliant use of epigrammatic openings. Dickens is an author well worth stealing from. Uh, the essay on Gandhi, saints should always be judged guilty until proved innocent, um, etc., etc. Extraordinary kind of steeped in the tradition of Swift, with whom he publishes his own dialogue, Johnson, Hazlitt. Hazlitt, I think. I wish I'd known whether he actually, I, I can't actually find him writing about Hazlitt, but Hazlitt for me is the great literary godfather to Orwell. But I want to talk about Orwell and beauty, actually. I want to, want to rescue him from high-mindedness, really, from the sort of carapace of worthiness. Partly, this is, again, what a surprise, an autobiographical remark, because I detested Orwell as a child. I had the opposite experience, I think, with Jim, or, um, or maybe it was the same experience, that we were, that the year was 1950-something, and what we did at my house was read Dickens out loud. And at that point, I hadn't known that Orwell wrote a kind of spectacularly exuberant hymn of appreciation for Dickens' this sort of bitter, defiant rage, as he put it on another occasion. Um, but we were actually, we were being force-fed anyway with the new criticism, with, with the high-minded great tradition of Dr. Leavis. And we were told that our writing really had to be, and I'm sure it's very good for us, um, Orwell's famous hard, clear window pane, stripped down, um, throw all those adjectives and adverbs away. And Orwell was our kind of literary big brother, actually. Um, we, certainly mine, anyway, because of, you know, uh, uh, however, later on, succinctness became my middle name, as, as you're hearing. 
Um, <laughs> so I actually detested the dictatorship of, B of Orwell as a kind of literary tutor. Until, actually, and this remained, I couldn't pick up, you know, Nikos or Animal Farm. And actually, it's, again, not true that actually late Orwell um, actually avoids the lyric. Late Orwell sometimes, listen to this. I mean, well, the last paragraph, my favorite paragraph of Homage to Catalonia, all I really want to do here is actually sit and read Orwell at you. Down, remember how it ends? Down here was still the England I'd known in my childhood, the railway cutting smothered in wildflowers, the deep meadows with great shining horses, browse and meditate. He was, of course, a huge, besotted fan of A.E. Houseman. The slow-moving streams bordered by willows, the green bosoms of the elms, but you have a figure of speech there, the larkspurs <laughs> in the cottage garden, the huge, peaceful wilderness of outer London, the barges on the miry river, the familiar streets, the posters telling of cricket matches. I mean, the, the cadences, he's trying to be a poet, as he often did try and be. Royal weddings, the men in bowler hats, the pigeons in Trafalgar Square, the red buses, the blue policemen, all sleeping the deep, deep sleep of England, from which I sometimes fear we shall never wake till we are jerked out of it by the royal bombs. Well, one of the diseases of teaching literature in America, being pontificated, is that it seems to me whether actually at high schools, where I go and talk, where To Kill a Mockingbird, excellent book though it is, is absolutely the gospel, or at my own university's core curriculum, is moral worthiness is often the index or the reason why literature is talked about. And Orwell himself, one of the debates, I think, which is so powerful inside Orwell, one of these wars with himself that, that Fitz talks about, is the war between the poet and the polemicist. You, you'll know that, you know, um, in a kind of reaction to what he saw as the kind of technical aestheticism of the immediately, the modernist generation of Eliot and Pound and so on, Orwell saw it as his duty to bring back subject matter. But then, of course, at the end of his life, famously in a series of devastating essays, he felt that literature itself had been swamped, as he put it, by propaganda, something he never could quite resolve. But he wished to make political writing beautiful. And by God, it is beautiful. I, you know, went back to 1984 only when, I'm ashamed to say, when I was sort of rereading Orwell for the history of Britain. And I'd forgotten, actually, that there are passages of of mind-boggling lyricism, especially about nature, and especially about history and memory. That book, to me, is a book about the tyranny of those who want to obliterate memory. He says, safely in his encounter with O'Brien, his Winston Smith's choice of toast is to, because I think O'Brien says to the future, and Winston refutes it and says to the past. Um, yes, the past is more important, says O'Brien gravely carries this enormous, terrible shadow over what follows. When I went back to all those extraordinary little moments, the discovery of paperweight, the half-remembered ballads, Oranges and Lemons, the Bells of Clemens, which O'Brien finishes for him again hideously, the sort of, the, the, the beauty of memory, the kind of instinctive um, embedding of Orwell, actually, both in the kind of earth of England, and it was England rather than Britain, and also in the kind of poetic muscularity of English literature itself. Um, it's something that just seems to me often overlooked because we take Orwell as somehow an improving tonic for our own sense of slightly wart-ridden, patched integrity. And I, you know, I just think we should leave this saying, God, you know, what a 
what a beautiful writer. Tell us a bit of fiction. Last bit of reading. With the one piece of Orwell, I don't know, I, I don't know if anybody else would vote with me. If I had to say, you can take one bit of Orwell with you on the desert island, on the moon, you want to read it, you know, one of Orwell's apocalypses about to drop on us. I would take some thoughts on the common toad, written for Tribune, 12th of April 1946, just two little bits. Um, here is Orwell also being funny. At this period after his long fast, the toad has a very spiritual look, like a strict Anglo-Catholic toward the end of Lent. His movements are languid but purposeful. His body shrunken, by contrast, his eyes look abnormally large. This allows one to notice what one might not at any other time, that a toad has about the most beautiful eye of any living creature. It is like gold, or more exactly, it is like the gold-colored semi-precious stone which one sometimes sees in signet rings, and which I think is called a chrysoberyl. And here, uh, skipping very quickly to a, 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 the issue which engages me, is it wicked to take a pleasure in spring and other seasonal changes? To put it more precisely, is it politically reprehensible while we all groaning, or at any rate ought to be groaning, under the shackles of the capitalist system, to point out that life is frequently more worth living because of a blackbird's song, a yellow elm tree in October, or some other natural phenomenon which does not cost money and does not have what the editors of left-wing newspapers call a class angle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I don't think I disagree with Simon. My, my point actually was the similes, and there, I noticed that there were uh, n no similes in the, uh, in the Ed uh, <laughs> Homes to Catalonia, um, was that they were labored, and that actually it was, uh, it, was just an, it was an illustration of a young writer starting to find his voice. I actually think, I mean, the, the heart of my remarks is that I read Orwell because I like to read Orwell, and I read Orwell because I derive a lot of pleasure in reading Orwell, and what I was trying to arrive at was the pleasure that I get from reading his pages. And it's, it's not a pleasure all that different from what Simon's describing. He's fun. I agree with you about the beauty of Orwell, but Homage to Catalonia, actually, which is, I said, is my favorite Orwell book, has many passages that are not beautiful at all, that they are in there uh, because he feels compelled to dot his I's and cross his T's about what he has seen with his own eyes and what he doesn't know. And there's a kind of earnestness of uh, truth-telling um, that I find extremely admirable in Orwell. And there's no way for him to get that into the book side by side with the lyrical passages. And he doesn't even try. They alternate, actually. And uh, so I would say that uh, I, I don't know if it's all just moral uplift, but there's a kind of epistemological I think I think the point that's emerging, I mean, is is, is Orwell as as a very which I think is, is I'm so pleased to see it emphasized here is 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 Orwell as as a very self-conscious writer because I think I think frequently in, in, in the political aspect of Orwell, which is obviously tremendously important, that Orwell as writer, which is appropriate to you know, sponsored by Penn. Orwell as writer is sometimes neglected, and and I think it's fantastic that that that, uh, that aspect is, is is being is, is which is so important is being emphasized here. Well, just because I owe Simon a comment, and you're, of course he's right about Churchill, and the other obvious thing would be that the hero or protagonist of 1984 is of course called Winston. Um, 
But here's a, a passage from 1984 very quickly. It's Winston has this dream of what he calls the Golden Country. It's one of his escapes. It was an old rabbit-bitten pasture with a foot track wandering across it and a molehill here and there. In the ragged hedge on the opposite side of the field, the boughs of the elm trees were swaying very faintly in the breeze, their leaves just stirring in dense masses like women's hair. Remember, elm trees have bosoms in your attribution, um, Simon. Somewhere near at hand, though out of sight, there was a clear, slow-moving stream where dace were swimming in the pools under the willow trees. And from this dream, Winston woke up with the word Shakespeare on his lips. So you couldn't have it more pastoral or more English than that. But I just wanted to recall to people, and I, in doing this, by the way, I express the hope that someone here doesn't like Orwell. Otherwise, this is going to be a very sickly evening <laughs> we're in for. Um, quintessential Englishness is one of the things that people often quite correctly uh, associate with him. But don't forget. He's born in Bengal, uh, goes back to India and to Burma um, as a policeman and a civil servant, speaks at least three subcontinental languages, certainly spoke Hindi, uh, spoke some quite complicated Burmese uh, dialects as well, publishes his first stuff in French, goes to fight in Spain, writes Coming Up for Air, one of his most evocative English social novels, actually my favorite, in Morocco um, in the late 30s. Um, hates the uh, hates the class system, hates the empire. Is appalled by the deference and placidity and easy, easily pushed around nature of the of the English. Um, in 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 many ways, is impatient not just with his own country, but I want to stress this, is really also um, an internationalist, but a rooted internationalist, a rooted cosmopolitan, if you like. Saying actually um, that he's, I'd, I'd almost say he's a romantic in the sense that the early Wordsworth is a romantic, that his pastoralism actually is a rejection of aristocratic sentimentality. In other words, the made landscape of the country house. Um, and that, you know, some of that kind of um, feverish determination actually to get to, I mean, hence the choice of toad rather than, I don't know, the rose, let's say as his emblem of Englishness. Uh, it's a much more kind of feral, gritty, Goodbye England's Goodbye England's toad. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but he wants it. He, I mean, that for him is a kind of <laughs> radicalism, right? I mean, actually, but it's, it's an easy jump for him to make, I think, or jump backwards to that, to that tradition. Any further comments? Mm -hmm. we're, we're turning over to the audience. All haters now. Uh, uh, Anything more from the panel? Well, now, now in the time remaining, which can go on for, for a bit, uh, uh, um, uh, we'll turn to you and, and uh, your, your comments and questions about, about, uh, about Orwell, what you wish these, these, these um, distinguished Orwell experts uh, to, to comment on. Yes? Thank you. 
No, it's, it's not a morality. It was written for Partisan Review. And it, it, it was an apology for, he, he was signed up by Philip Rav and others to write a London letter for Partisan Review, more or less as soon as the war began. I'd say, describe him in my book as the sort of intellectual equivalent of the Edward Murrow broadcast from London. Um, and on the whole, he gave them pretty good service, but he, he does have a very self-critical essay in about 1943 saying, here are the ways in which I think I might have misled your readers about the Churchill government and the progress of the war. My, my excellent book available at fine bookstores everywhere. And upstairs. <laughs> no reviewer has yet pointed out, which reviewers often tend to do, it does need an index. If it had one, I would have found this by now. I'll keep looking for you, but I have the reference. Well, uh, and also his essay, is a wonderful, wonderful long essay, uh, where I think he, he, he goes over his views and what, what he was wrong about uh, the lion and the unicorn. I don't know whether he specifically uh, raises those points, but he says that he felt you know, there had to be a bloody revolution and then he realizes that th that was not necessary, and he, he, he talks about his change, change of view in, in, in that essay. And of course, the essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, being the heraldic beast that, that supports the, the, the crest of England. It, it's a wonderful title for a figure, figure on the left to write an essay. Yes? About 10 years ago, I attended a marvelous series of lectures at the New School by some veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And it was interesting that uh, uh, if Franco was the number one enemy, only slightly behind was George Orwell. And the, uh, one of the big arguments that was made against Orwell was that he was intellectually dishonest in Comments to Catalonia, saying that the friend of his who dies at the end of the book never really died. He didn't know that. Well, I think at the time he wrote the book, he thought he had, that George Cox uh, had died. Um, so I, I think that was an honest error. And then the, the book was, it was, it was uh, hardly sold at all, and then copies were blitzed. There was, there was never an occasion for, 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 for a second edition. I think the possible, there's a letter that he wrote to George Delaneck, which is very, during, at the time of the Spanish Civil War, uh, if you wanted to attack him on his, on his account of the Spanish Civil War, you could look at that, which is also interesting, because it's the only time, as far as I know, in which he signs his name, both George Orwell and Eric Blair. Basically, before that, he, I know Christopher thinks I exaggerate that, but before that, he, he tended to be Eric Blair after that, he, 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 he was George Orwell. But there he says he's making an argument. I mean, he's, he's, I think he's aware, his great power is <coughs> he's a truth teller. But, but, but I think he's even greater. He's an artist, and he's, he's aware that he's, he's uh, presenting a, 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 I think, others might disagree, that, that he's presenting and making an argument. And therefore, the, 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 the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the Spanish, would, would disagree uh, with his take on the Barcelona day, which, was, which I think was fundamentally correct. But he wasn't above making his argument and possibly you know, not, being, not being necessarily totally, absolutely and totally uh, accurate. And I think he was more self-aware of that, I think. I don't know if others want to come. Well, the, uh, the truth of the matter is that we now have the Soviet archives from, from Barcelona, which we, the, that meeting wouldn't have been able to read 10 years ago. And the striking thing about them is how, uh, in, in, in how much detail they confirm Orwell's um, suppositions. I call them suppositions because what Orwell says in Homage to Catalonia is, this is what I saw myself and can vouch for. 
though you don't have to trust me. And when I quote someone else, it's someone I believe to be reliable. But I don't know if I'm right or not. He's quite modest about it. Um, and he says he fears that even this version will never get published, which it nearly was not. And after all, he was very nearly killed in, in trying to get out of Barcelona by the, by the communists. But on the crucial question, the thing he actually did see, which was the attack on the telephone exchange in Barcelona in May 1937, he says, I don't think this was spontaneous. I think it was a provocation organized by Stalin's police to try and bring about a military coup for their party. That's how it looked and smelled to me. And now that's what they say they were doing, in their own words, in their own communiques. And you can read it all in print. Um, it's, all, it's all there. I mean, as a Stalinist would say, you know, we have the confessions. Well, uh, I couldn't disagree with you more. I, I, I think he was right to repudiate so many things, so things he was, um, even for me, um, over lush, actually, and rather stereotyped. Um, I think, actually, the, his account, I'm sure you know, of his own Burmese days, which actually appears in part two of um, The Road to Wigan Pier, is, is truly wonderful. Um, and I guess, in the spirit of what we're saying about his um, his taking liberties sometimes, we'll never know whether he really did spend that night in the compartment with someone from the education department and drank beer and, and toasted the death of the British Empire, or hatred of the British Empire. But it's just, it, it's so much better, I think, than, than Burmese days. I, again, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I, I don't know how long it is since you've read 1904, because like you, I, I was made to read it as an improving document. And that means I didn't really read it properly. And when I went back to read it, I did think it's simply <coughs> an extraordinary literary masterpiece. And actually, um, the sense actually of the world of trolls, for example, um, the, uh, all, all sorts of passages are really imaginative writing of the highest degree of uh, creative precision and power. Um, and uh, I don't know, if you haven't read it for some time, give it another shot. I, uh, weirdly, I think actually of, I, I also think some of the essays, that's why it's put in common code, ultimately are the greatest thing he ever wrote. But of the book-length things, I, I think that is oddly enough. I, in a way, the political predictions actually are the weakest claim to that book being um, lodged in the pantheon. And, but everything else about it is just great. Well, except um, who here has read uh, The Captive Mind? Okay, not enough people. Um, who here has read The Captive Mind? 
Czesław Miłosz's work, which, I mean, he's now recognized as the, the laureate of Poland in poetry and criticism and literature altogether, but in 1951, when he wrote the book, he was a recently self-exiled former uh, communist cultural official in Poland, working, working for Stalinized Poland, who had been. And it was one of the first books to describe what the atmosphere of the new Eastern Europe was like. But I, I mention it for this reason. Um, it's 1951, bear in mind the date. Uh, he says, in, among the um, apparat in the Polish Communist Party, there's the circulation, very secret and very careful, of an illegal edition, a legal translation of a book called 1984, which is, which is passed from hand to hand and read with great eagerness and attention. And all those who read it are extraordinarily impressed and then astounded to find that its author, an, an unknown Englishman, has never lived in the Soviet Union or in under Stalinism, because they don't understand how in that case he could so completely have captured the texture of a closed society. Now remember, it's 51, Orwell's just died, 1984 is just out. 1984 is about a hidden book within the inner party. By, by the time Miłosz is, writing, Miłosz is writing, 1984 is a secret book passed around within the inner party. I don't think any, any greater compliment has been paid in the last century by any writer uh, to another than that. Yes. Well, I think I can. So I'm sorry to keep doing this. I can answer that question. He wouldn't have been surprised by the collapse of the Soviet Union because he uh, foresaw it quite, uh, quite um, in, in, in actual detail. Robert Conquest, the scholar and historian of Stalinism, who's usually given the credit for having most accurately predicted the collapse of the Soviet or implosion of the Soviet system, says that the credit doesn't belong to him; it belongs to Orwell because Orwell made the obvious point, which was the system could not go on as it was without an attempt to reform itself, and an attempt to reform itself would lead to its collapse. A very nice handling of dialectical materialism, I've always thought. A votary of Onan. Yeah, well, <laughs> an English problem. <laughs> well known English one.
I'll offer it. I'll just break in before the uh, loquacious duel <laughs> beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think the interesting thing about Orwell is he's got lots of views about language. I think language interested him, and there's no one view. I was struck going through the journals that he kept for the writing of The Road to Wigan Pier that almost every person he meets, he makes the observation about his accent. It's a broad accent. It's a Lancashire accent. It's a public school accent. It's an educated accent. It's a very, very broad accent. And uh, equally, when in the notes that he made for Down and Out in Paris and London, in London he, he, he puts together a little dictionary, a lexicon, of all the pieces of language that the people he meets uh, are using. And I think, you know, in, in many respects, that's just an English preoccupation because it's, it's, it's a consequence of the class system. And while he was someone who loathed the class system, anyone who's going to loathe the class system that much is going to be an obsessive student of the class system. And the class system is defined by nothing else if, if it's not language. And that characterizes all his encounters. But that, again, is something quite different from when he starts to talk about language as political medium. Did anyone ever see Beyond the Fringe when it came to New York? One, one of the sketches begins with um, Jonathan Miller walking on and saying, well, probably a lot of you have noticed by now that um, Peter Cook and I went to private schools and to Oxford, whereas um, Adam Bennett and Dudley Moore weren't, so, weren't really so fortunate. Um, uh, but we have very much enjoyed working with them and, and treating, them as, as treating, them, treating them as equals. Um, Orwell's word for this was branded on the tongue. It's, it's the special signifier of the class system in Britain. It's not regional, though it, it can be that too, but is you can tell as soon as people open their mouths. You, st you still can to a great extent. He was very sensitive to it. He, by the way, of course, like a lot of people, um, didn't go to university. But um, I think that though he didn't like the Leavises, and they didn't like him or think much of him either, he did have a sense of what Leavis called the great tradition in English literature. And uh, though Leavis despised Milton and told people you could leave him out of the canon, and Orwell revered him partly for what I think was his affection for the Protestant Revolution, he did have a sense of the continuity and evolution of English, and he, di he did identify it with a struggle for emancipation. So it's, and he also knew that it was made up of a number of imports, that it was an amalgam of other languages, rather sinuous and clever and very flexible. Uh, an elastic and capacious uh, one. So it's quite interesting in, in politics and the English language, I think it is, he's telling people how to avoid propaganda and jargon. And one thing he advises people to do is cut out any foreign phrase you may have used in anything. That's, in, a, in a way, that's a, his Tory snarl coming back again. It's, you know, let's keep it pure, let's keep it clean here. He can't really have meant to say you should keep foreign words out of the out of the argo, or the, uh, so to speak, or the vernacular, <laughs> or the vernacular, um, or the idiom. I think what he may have meant is he distrusted the, aff the affectation of people who made too much use of this kind of thing. But it's a false step, um, and one that he didn't, he didn't quite correct in himself. Yeah, was, well, was, was the fascinating thing in England, I think, uh, which fits in with the language, is that, uh, that uh, everything, everything is a signifier. And, and also uh, the aspect which the questioner in a way alluded to and was pointed out a couple of weeks ago or months ago ago in the New York Times, I think we're beginning a discussion of, of, of Christopher's book at the column, the essay at the back, that ev so much is in Orwell, you can, you can, you can frequently find uh, support for any argument that you wish to make within, wi within limits. <laughs> Jim, you're Well, I, he was a great lexicographer. Since, I mean, he, he collected tramping slang as well. 
um, he, he had this extraordinary hot-picking um, episode where, again, he was sort of busy noting down particular phrases of that subsection of the Krampus. Um, I think I suppose a, a lot of his uh, of sort of love-hate relationship with the kind of Bernese underclass and with the working class um, <coughs> wanted desperately, I think, to sort of absorb the, the flesh and blood quality of vernacular working class non-Oxbridge English, but was always quite rightly shy of doing that in a kind of pretentious way. One of the things he, he loved about Dickens, although he, you know, he, he, he had all sorts of critical things to say about how Dickens' characters were sort of finished as soon as they were started, was Dickens' genuine ability to um, actually import, say, valet talk to Sam Weller and make it hear an extraordinary kind of richness, a huge sort of variety of, of, of spoken English. So in the last resort, I think he was sort of almost uh, overwhelmed by the rich possibilities of different kinds of spoken English and wanted to kind of register it. Um, but his own prose was not really ever going to make much room for it except as reported speech. But some of those moments are great. I mean, I love the moment. I can't remember where it is. Um, uh, it is in Down Out in Paris in London, yeah, I'm pretty sure, where he has this conversation with Bozo the Screever, the pavement artist, actually, who's doing cartoons of, uh, of, uh, of politicians. And that is a kind of wonderful, who still Orwell is rather egregiously noting down the rise and fall, like some sort of left-wing Professor Higgins. Um, but you're grateful to have it, I think. Yes. Can you speak up? Moment. More production. You're on. Bring it on. The question was, I alluded briefly to the force feeding of Animal Farm in 1984 in American schools, and Simon actually referred to it as a phenomenon in British schools. Uh, I, I think that uh, growing up in certainly the United States, uh, Orwell was held out as a digestible specimen of uh, a correct view of totalitarianism. Uh, and Animal Farm in particular was something that you could um, uh, understand at a relatively tender and early age. Uh, I don't think I uh, reacted as fiercely as Simon describes himself reacting, in part because the context was a little different when I read Orwell. And uh, uh, I remember 1984 making, you know, an impression on me, but I read it at the same age as I recall that I read John Hersey's Hiroshima, which made a great impression on me. And uh, there was a way in which these books, at least as I received them, weren't simply propaganda, Cold War anti-communist propaganda, but they were books that laid out what, in retrospect, seemed to me some of the real stakes of the world that I would grow up to inherit. Uh, so it was part of the curriculum, and I don't particularly um, uh, regret the fact that it was part of my curriculum. Uh, it was a great revelation when I uh, discovered a decade later homage to Catalonia, which would never have been on that curriculum uh, for obvious reasons.
Oh, I think I think I mean I think there's evidence. There may be evidence, or people have said that overly conspiratorially that 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 school boards, uh, you know, there w that there was almost a a prescription of of Animal Farm and and, and 1984 as as Cold War documents. And and Orwell, of course, was in, in intensely aware of that of that danger. Of course, he couldn't comment on 1984, but Christopher quotes in his book uh, the famous letter he wrote to an American trade union official. Saying, saying, I am a socialist, but but you can see, looking at those books, why 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 they could be used, I think, against Orwell's wishes and his intent as 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 anti-socialist, uh, more general than just I mean, particularly anti-communist, but by extension, uh, uh, they could also be seen as anti-socialist, even though that's not what Orwell intended. But the book, I mean, Animal Farm was almost unpublishable by, uh, when Orwell first wrote it. T.S. Eliot turned it down because he thought it was too anti-Stalin. Um, uh, Dial Press in New York turned it down on the odd grounds that uh, it was impossible to sell animal stories in the United States. <laughs> that's my, my, from the world of Disney, my favorite uh, rejection letter of all time, I think, is that. And the, uh, it was brought out in a Samizdat edition in Ukrainian originally and distributed for free among people in displaced persons camps in Europe. And when it was found by the authorities, uh, the, the United States Army would turn it over to be burned by the Red Army because it was understood to be hostile to the great alliance with Comrade Stalin. So it could not possibly have had less promising beginnings as a work of anti-communist propaganda as we understand it. I think sometime later, use is made of it in the, in the, in the 50s um, when the Congress for Cultural Freedom and people like that are looking for texts. And now, I believe, and, and actually also then, it was teachable in schools and sometimes was and still is as a Swiftian story where you don't have to know any more than you need to know who Swift's enemies were when you read Gulliver's Travels. And many, many children have had it read to them as a bedtime story in its own right. No, the Congress of Cultural Freedom may well have subsidized Declan Warburg, who, 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 who specifically, I think, possibly for the, for the, the, the uh, support of uh, the publication of those books. But I mean, you know, you can't blame Orwell for that. No, I wish yes. they'd do it to me. Now, one thing that's done by the Adam Hamilton is ask the question of how Orwell approached the genre. Because he wrote in a lot of different forms. It seems to me that the shape of his literary career is different from that of almost any other great writer. In particular, he took repartage into his most ephemeral forms, and a lot of his most fleeting and lasting contributions came from journalism. And I'm curious how he thought about that. I never know what genre means. Well, I, I, I comment. I think he was an empiricist, you know? uh, in the sense the Tribune asked him to, to write these columns, and and um, you know he he, he he was out to make a living by by his writing, and 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 in a way I think it was almost coincidental. I mean, thank God that he wrote these essays in journalism, but I I, I don't know how conscious it was. I think it was probably for the moment. Well, I would like to add one thing because this goes back to the question of what is ideal of, of the English language was. And it seems to me that um, you know my more loquacious panelists have talked about the high culture antecedents. But as they were speaking, particularly Simon, I was thinking about demotic journalism as a style, as a language style. And it seems to me that one reason why arguably uh, his greatest literary works may be his essays, uh, is because they are inflected with, and I think his writing improves the more journalism he's done, actually. 
because it introduces a kind of plainness and um, uh, artful framing down, stripping down to uh, key essentials, a story and how you communicate it to an audience. So in that sense, if you can call journalism a genre, uh, I, I think that the fact that for accidental reasons he was forced to make a living was beneficial to him as a craftsman of the language. I think at the beginning he wanted to be a novelist, yeah. but but, yeah. The, but the four novels weren't weren't uh, the, the, they weren't very successful. Burmese Days was published both, which I like more than Sunday, was published both in in the United States and 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 Britain. Um, I mean, some of the others were, but I mean, he, he didn't make it as a novelist. Right. I think that, uh, that's no, that's not clear. But the key answer is he's a failed novelist, really. I mean, for a long time, so he kind of backs, and that's his when he comes to Southwold and tells Daddy he's throwing up the job. It is in order, we don't think he says novelist in order to be a writer, he tells us, but the dream is somehow making, you know, clergyman's daughter a kind of, you know, literary masterpiece. So he struggles desperately with that. Not that he kind of backs in, he is always, because of what we know about him as a translator, and he's constantly got this essay on the side, but his dream of himself, that moment in the late 1920s, I think, is actually as a novelist. So in some sense, it's a, it's a blessed failure for the rest of us. Yes? Oh, definitely. Just he'd be um, he, there's quite a lot of things he wouldn't get away with. <coughs> um, yes, early on, someone um, Simon, I think, read no, Jim, uh, Jim Miller read the 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 quote. The part of the appeal of Orwell is that he's not a genius, and he gives one the feeling that anybody could do what he does. Um, and the truth is that not very many people can do <laughs> what he does, <laughs> and that he gives the illusion of being not a genius because he's got this pretty developed, accessible, informal, I'm your, pa I'm your friend, let's go have a pint at the pub style. But in fact, a as you sort of read the writing, especially um, so many of the failed literary attempts, you see really quite a, a developed practice persona. I think one of the other things about Orwell, which goes back to the remarks about oral genre hopping, is that he, he is more than anything else a writer's writer. He was going to make his living by writing, and it didn't actually matter how he was going to express it. He would write novels, and he'd write journalism, he'd write journalism that he called novels, he'd write um, book reviews. He, he sometimes when he, I think when he wrote his book reviews, he put on a literary hat that, for me, comes across as 
pretty earnest and pretty flapped and definitely not a genius. But the, the appeal is that he was doing so much in such a short life. I, in terms of output, he's actually comparable uh, to someone like John Updike. Um, and uh, you couldn't think of a more different writer, but he's got that kind of engine driving him all the time. The reason I like to teach him and, and like to introduce students of mine, if they haven't, to read him, or if they've only been force-fed some stuff, as many of them have, to make them read more, is because I, I detest the idea of the role model and all that stuff. But I agree with Trilling. If you, if you read George Eliot, say, or Marcel Proust, you think, well, I'm not really entitled to call myself a writer. If you read George Orwell, and as you get older and as you try it harder, you think, well, I could probably have written Confessions of a Book Reviewer, for example. I think I could say that for myself now. I've, I've written things that I think could be published in the same anthology as that. And so it means, yes, it, it, Trilling is right. It's within, it's within the human compass. Uh, what, what most writers don't have, most people don't have, is uh, his, his, uh, what he would probably have called, if it was someone else, uh, guts. Um, and I've got a, a point to make about the genre factor, too. And I want to quarrel with something I say in my book. In, in my book, I say his novels almost never rise to the level of his journalism. In other words, that shooting an elephant and a hanging are much better than Burmese Day, and, and so on. And until 1984, none of his fiction comes up to the level of his journalism. But there is a thing in Burmese Day, since it's been attacked, that I, I'd like to say always impressed me very much. Remember, it's written in the early 20s or so. He guesses the secret of imperialism and racism. He guesses the sexual secret that's at the heart of this. The thrill of domination, uh, the way that um, exploitation in the colonial sense is matched by the exploitation of, of Burmese women. And, why, and that's what a lot of the white men who've come out there are sort of interested in. They, they would fail with women if they couldn't buy them or have them as serfs. And we now know enough about slavery and empire, to know how, how important that was. Now, I don't think Orwell actually would ever have been able to write a non-fiction account of that. I think something in him would have, because it would have had to be too personal. I think it is probably the reason he gave up the job, because he was afraid of becoming um, a sadist or a monster. Uh, but he, if, if you read why, why Flory is so messed up, um, and, and it, uh, he even admits to having bought the woman with whom he lived from her family, you get a sense that he, he was all well using, um, using literature in a very insightful way. So I think I still think the book, as well as presaging a writer who he didn't like, Graham Greene, he's way ahead of Graham Greene in the sort of sweltering white man's grave, anxiety, booze, guilt, despair uh, scenario. Um, he, does, he does guess at something very important about the Nietzschean element in power, <coughs> the master-slave relationship, which essentially becomes and eventually, I mean to say, becomes the master, the master element in, in his novels of totalitarianism. Yes, way in back. <laughs> the New Statesman, and it's the nation's sister paper, um, or brother paper, uh, didn't publish him, refused to publish him on Spain, wouldn't publish his dispatches on Spain because they thought it would let down the side give ammunition to the enemy, the usual sort of party-minded thought. And he never forgave the editor, Kingsley Martin, for that. And the nation took a similar line on similar events at the time. But as far as I know, he never uh, submitted a piece to them. But he did, he did write for the New Statesman certainly before, and I think at least once after that. 
He stopped writing for the New Republic when it came out for Henry Wallace in 1948. He thought it had become, he thought his editorship had become Stalinist. Uh, he didn't know that the then editor, Michael Strait, was later going to be revealed as a KGB agent. But he had a good nose for that kind of thing. Fine ventriloquist you turn out to be. <laughs> Historian right here. Um, well, that particular book, I think, actually, um, while, I, while I made a good case of saying, let's put something else in the hands of kids, maybe, as well as animal farm, I'm not sure I would put Keep the Activists Aside. It, uh, it, 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 it's um, a kind of um, memoir of a particular kind of um, failed um, creative angst which Orwell despised, you know, really. It's a record, it's a, it's a kind of grotesque caricature, really, of a kind of self-pitying, miserable, um, you know, world, of a, a, a particular sort of, it's, it's a particular kind of intelligentsia um, to which he remained ever more intensely allergic as his life went on. I, I th that and Clergyman's Daughter, um, I don't know if they date. Um, I think I'm too close to him now to know that. I, um, as, as, I don't know, I think Tom Wolfe is dated. You know, I think, as I say, <laughs> things that are very recently close to us are, date, dating, as Einstein must have said somewhere, is a relative thing. I think, I think, it, would get, uh, I think it would keep that, I'm not sure, keep, I think Norman Mailer's uh, deal, where you talk about, uh, keep that activism applying was, was his favorite oral novel. I mean, I think the truth of I mean, I think they, they, they have lots of good things in them, but we wouldn't be reading them if Orwell hadn't yep. written other things. I mean, I, I think they would have been disappeared novels, likely to be disappeared novels, if Orwell had died in 1940. Uh, he, he lived tragically short life as it was, but I think it's the later writing. I mean, the, the a hanging and shooting the elephant sort of predicts what, what his essays are going to, uh, to be. But then, then there's this extraordinary flowering uh, that, that, uh, that happens, uh, happens after Spain. And you know, this great new, this new edition of, of, of you know, uh, more than a thousand pages of selected, uh, presumably selected rather than collected uh, essays of Orwell. I mean, the, the quantity is extraordinary. I think the novels are, are, are fascinating, interesting novels. I don't think they necessarily date them more than other novels that have been written X years before, but I don't think they would have been remembered if, 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 if Orwell had not become Orwell. Well, ch you know, children, children don't have to go down the mines anymore, but people, or up the chimneys, but people don't think that Dickens is dated for that reason, I don't think. It's very recent, people forget how recent it is that millions of people in, in British society could only expect to be domestic servants if they were to have a steady job at all. I mean, that, that's what life was like. Um, until the fangs of the ruling class were drawn by the war and the post-war um, go government, that's what, the, that's what the memory of people's working lives was like. And so Orwell's very faithful to this, this <coughs> the, the dead-endishness and servility of so much of English life. If you want to know what it was like, and I, since I don't think the concept of the 30s is exactly dated, if you see what I mean, 
um, then you'd need Orwell to find it out, as you would the Grapes of Wrath. He, he was very interested, I think, in endurance and in survival. And um, some of the, some, the issue of survival, what survives in literature and philosophy, uh, at the heart of some of the greatest essays. And I, I, I want to say that some of the long essays, you go for an absolutely kind of thrilling roller coaster ride of an amazing kind of blazing intelligence. I mean, my, you know, the, the one on, on Shakespeare and Tolstoy and King Lear. Um, and for those of you who haven't read it, it would be absolutely wrong to tell you what the payoff is. It's one of those moments when you say, oh, of course. But, um, it, it, uh, the question is, why does, and I will not say what the answer is, why does Tolstoy single out King Lear to prove that Shakespeare's kind of third-rate writer that people have been conned into appreciating? It is just a dazzling piece of um, literary and intellectual exuberance, really. And you get to the end, you just have to go to bed. <laughs> I think we have time and for good please, please. There's two more questions. <laughs> yes, there. Ah, there's always one at every meeting, and it's always a pleasure, too. Did everyone get the question? No, no. no. Trust me, had it right. Uh, I, was, I was rebuked, um, at least implicitly, for saying that only Orwell got it right, uh, got the three great questions of the century, empire, fascism, and Stalinism right. The question says, Leon Trotsky got them right, too, and I would agree with that. But I think I said the only public intellectual um, who got them right, um, the only critic, as it were. Uh, Trotsky got them right in a different order, I must say, and by different means. Um, but yes, in my, I mean, if you want my opinion, the only, the only tradition of the, the political diaspora that comes out of the 20th century with its head uh, held high, or actually uh, able to hold up its head at all, is, is the tradition of the left opposition. Um, so yes, um, thank you for the, as it were, the reinforcement. Orwell didn't mind being called a Trotskyist. Um, he, that's what those, Eliot said, I misrepresented <coughs> Eliot's reasons for turning down the um, Animal Farm. He, I mean, he, he did just—he did say it was too anti-Stalin. What he actually said was it was too Trotsky, Trotskyite, as he put it, which is always a giveaway. By the way, um, that's the word that Stalinists use. No, well, thank you, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> One more question. No. Well, oh, oh, second. No, there's, there's Kersler, uh, Victor, Victor Serge, C.L.R. James. He was a, he was friendly or an, uh, in admiring contact with all of these, but none of them were able to find an audience in the way that he did. Well, did. Yeah, yes, yeah, for that one book. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank on, your, on the audience's behalf. I'd like to thank our panel. <laughs> Do you have an empire? Yeah, I suppose she does. 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 She does